The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I thank you that you are bringing us back to you. I thank you that you have came after us. I thank you that you didn't wait for us to get cleaned up. You didn't wait for us to try to fix ourselves. What can dead men do for themselves? We were lifeless. We were spiritually bankrupt. We were spiritually dead on the table. And God made us alive through Christ Jesus. Thank you for coming after us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for adopting us into your family. Thank you for calling us your own. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit to lead us into all things. Father, you are so good to us. I pray that you would think through my mind today, that you would speak through my vocal cords. I pray that I would preach your word clearly, um, that it would be all of you and none of me. pray that you would um, help our ears, help us hear what you have to say. And that we would rejoice in you today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are in the book of Ephesians. We've been going through this since June. We publicly launched our service in January. Um, We are getting close to being finished with the book, but we are stuck in chapter 5, verse 21 through 33. Um, One of the most beautiful passages, a seminal passage on marriage. What is marriage about? What does it mean? What is its purpose? What is its function? How is it supposed to work? How do you choose a spouse? What is a spouse for? All these different things are answered in this passage. And it's absolutely critical for us today in our day and age to go back to the scriptures and to look and see just what does God have to say about marriage. All right. Many would say marriage is under attack in our culture. The institution of marriage is under attack in our culture. Why? What for? We've talked a lot about that in the past three weeks. Um, and now we are on the fourth week. Um, I'm just going to do a really quick um, rundown, really quick recap. We've seen four things so far in this passage. Number one, we saw that 
All of our problems in marriage, every problem in marriage, every problem in relationships is a problem caused by our selfishness, self-centeredness. Every problem in marriage is caused, caused by self-centeredness. That is the root of our problem. We have this innate sense, it's called original sin, that wants to make it about us. We want to use other people to make us happy. We want to find a spouse that fulfills my needs and fulfills my goals and fulfills my desires. We are self-centered at the base, at nature. That's the root of the problem. Okay? Now, Jesus Christ has given us something to sever that root. In Christ, through the Spirit of God, God has severed the root through the gospel. And He empowers us. He impregnates us. He puts His Spirit within us to lay our life down. To humble ourselves. To put another person first. So, the first thing we said, self-centeredness is the cause of all, all of our problems. Number two, the power of marriage is a spirit-led humility. Verse 21, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, says that we are to lay our lives down to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That this reverence, this awe of the gospel, being so overwhelmed by what God has done for us in Christ, that this causes us to lay our lives down for one another. Chad, could you grab me a water, man? It's crazy. Three cups of coffee have made me a little thirsty. I don't know what's up with that. Um, And then last week we talked about, or no, I guess this is the fifth week. So, and then third, or no, third week we talked about the definition of marriage. What is marriage? Is marriage just a piece of paper? Well, we saw from this text and from scripture that marriage at its base is a covenant. It's a lifelong legal declaration. It's a promise that says, I will be loving. I will be cherishing. I will be tough. I will be tender. I will trust. I will be there for you in the future. It's not a feeling. It's not a feeling. So our culture would primarily say that love, thank you, brother, our love is a feeling. Now, we all like that when it's, you know, rainbows and tulips, right? We all like that love is a feeling when things are going well, but what happens when things don't feel well? What happens when the feelings are gone? Well, we know what happens when the feelings are gone. We trade up. We find someone to make us feel like that again. And the Bible says, absolutely not. You will ruin your life. You will ruin other relationships if you do that. It's a covenant first. I promise to be there and the feelings will come later. All right? So at its base, it's, it's a covenant. We talked a lot about that. I won't go into, any, into that anymore. And then last week we talked about the priority of marriage. That marriage is meant to be, by definition, by um, creation, it's meant to be the most important relationship in your life. More important than the relationship with your parents. More important than the relationship with your children. That if you place, um, the Bible says, to leave and to cleave. To leave your family and to cleave to this new unit that you've created. This husband and wife. That if you bring any other relationship into your marriage relationship, you will destroy it. We talked about pseudo-spouses. Many times the parents become a pseudo-spouse. Before I talk, before we make any decisions, we've got to find out what mom says. We've got to find out what dad says. Well, this is the way we used to do it. So I just expect to do it that way. That's bringing in a pseudo-spouse into our relationship. And it's going to destroy it. We also talked about how our children can become pseudo-spouses. That when the, when the, the couple comes together... They have a kid and all of a sudden the wife gets what she really wants. All her life she's been dreaming about children. 
And the husband, he gets this woman and he feels excited. He's, he's he, man, we're a couple, we're new. All of a sudden he gives her this life of this baby and she's walking around pregnant. He's smiling ear to ear and that baby comes and all of a sudden wife disappears. All of a sudden intimacy's gone. All of a sudden she's kind of giving him, give him a cold shoulder because she's got her I'm not saying women turn into Gollum from Lord of the Rings, but maybe it sounds like that. My precious. Right? She got what she really wants, so the husband feels this cold shoulder, and the, this child, this bundle of joy, this bundle of blessing that God has given them, now becomes an idol, now becomes a pseudo-spouse, now becomes the place where I go to find my meaning, find my significance. She's had a rough day, she goes to the baby. She feels worthless, she goes to the baby. Have a tough day of marriage, go to the baby. And then what we see happens, many times the husband goes to work. The mom goes to the children. 18 years they suffer along. They live separate lives, roommates under the same household. And then one day, well actually, nowadays, it used to be when they're 18, nowadays it's like 29 Uh, One day when the guy turns 29, he finally uh, moves out of the house. And that little baby has been ripped from mom and dad. And now what do we do? Now what do we do? I mean, hundreds of thousands of marriages end each year because the kids have left. And now what? We have no relationship. Our love and commitment was based on the kids and not based on a relationship between the husband and wife anymore because the kids became a pseudo-spouse. Career can become a pseudo-spouse. And we talked about how marriage as priority, as defined by God and created by God, it's meant to give us strength. It's meant to be st- give us stability. It's meant to be the most primary relationship in our life. And if you, if you treat it not as such... It will be to your own peril. That God's laws swing back. Just like the law of gravity that God instituted. If you get up on, this, on the top of this building and say, you know what? Gravity's for you. I'm going to decide my own gravity. And you jump off, it's going to go bad for you. That law is going to swing back. The law of the priority of marriage is the same way. If you place your career, listen to this, I'm just going to, those of you who have career idols, I'm going to tell you this. If you place your career in front of your spousal relationship, God's law will bite back. Not only will you lose your, um, your marriage, but more than likely, you, your career will be, will be devastatingly affected as well. You'll go to work and when it's turmoil at home and there's fighting in the house and the marriage isn't right, you go to work and you can't produce 100%. You can't think clearly. Your career is going to be affected. For those of you who who money is your God and money becomes your pseudo spouse, same thing. You spend all these, you know, a lot of um, Hollywood and these millionaires and stuff that that are pouring their life and all this money. It just doesn't make sense to me. They've got all this business savvy. And then all of a sudden, 10, 15 years into it, they give half of it to their spouse or more in a divorce. Like, do you see that? Like, you, you put money ahead of your spouse, you lost your spouse, and you lose half your money. God's law bites back. God's laws bite back. So we talked about how the goal of marriage is not primarily to make us happy. 
but to make us holy. And this is the secret. This is the secret. It doesn't make us happy. It makes us holy. That's what the point of marriage to make us holy. But in being holy, you find true happiness. God does this by using life circumstances to point out our sinful self-centeredness to our spouse. It is then our spouse who lovingly confronts us and speaks the truth to us in love. Uh, many times, we, if you know, you probably know by experience, if you are married, this is painful. This is difficult. One person usually doesn't like to confront. One person does like to confront, but they're too aggressive and too forceful, so they hurt us. So we need the power of the gospel to do two things. Number one, to teach us how to confront without crushing the other person. And to teach us to receive confrontation without being crushed. Because we can say, in Christ, in the gospel, I am free to admit that I'm completely broken that I'm completely sinful, that I'm completely jacked up. But at the same time, God loves me completely. The gospel frees us to submit, to love each other, to lay our lives down. It's the only thing that can free us to confront in love without crushing. And last week I said, in marriage, God takes your self-centeredness and he uses it against you for your own good. So that's kind of where we've been. And this is where we're headed today. Um, One of the most, I think it's one of the least talked about aspects of marriage ever. Um, Our our, uh, president of our network, they they just wrote a book called Real Marriage. And they researched and read part of or all 187 books on marriage. And not one of them mentioned what we're going to talk about today. Um, I've got a shelf at home um, about this wide, all marriage books. And not one of my books that I've read on marriage has ever talked about what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I, want, I want you to go down. We're going to look at verse 31. We've been there for a couple weeks, but we're going to be there again. <clears throat> Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two, say two, shall become one flesh. Say one. All right, now listen, this is really unique. The Bible says that two people come together and they become one, a whole new person. This is why you have to leave and cleave from your family. You have to leave uh, the way you used to do things. This is the way my mother reacted and this is the way my mother did things. This is the way I expect my wife to do things. No, it's not leaving and cleaving. This is the way my dad did things. My dad led the home. This is what I'm expecting from my husband. No, you have to leave and cleave. When you come together, the two become one. You need to sit down and have several conversations. What is our home going to look like? What is our life going to look like? How are we going to love each other? Who's going to pay the bills? Who's going to take out the trash? Who's going to spend the majority of the time raising the kids? We both do it together. Who's going to work? Who's, is there somebody going to stay home? What are we going to do with kids? How many kids are we going to have? What are we going to do with the holidays? All of these details are part of leaving our past, and cleaving to this new unit, this new person that God has created. Now, out of this, and out of some other texts we're going to check out here, we're going to see this. The purpose of marriage is friendship. The purpose of marriage is friendship. Your spouse... Biblically, now this is 
crazy. This is countercultural here. This was countercultural back in this day as well. Your spouse is meant to be your best friend. Single people, you need to listen up because this is completely countercultural for our day and day as well. The best marriages exist between best friends. I want you to hear this. Because most of us have bought into this idea that's been fed to us by our culture that romantic love comes first and then we'll develop friendship later. And that's completely backwards. So most of us, this is what we do. We walk into a room and there's 20 people there. Immediately, we cross off 16 of those because they're not our type physically. She's got weird elbows. He's got a weird, you know, widow's peak or something. You know, I don't like the way his hair lays on his face. You know, like we, did you see his pants? They were like a half inch too short. I mean, it's just weird. We judge people by, I mean, guys, listen, this is, uh -uh, this is kind of funny, but it's dead serious. Like, and if you're a single person, you know this. Oh my gosh, you know, all he drinks is lattes. Right? He doesn't even drink his coffee black. Give me a break. I could never date a guy that drink, doesn't drink his coffee black. We judge people by the weirdest things. So this is what happens. We walk in. There's 20 people. 16 of them we cross off our list because of some weird phobia we have about something on their personhood. Cross them off. Then we see four. Okay, there's four here. We go talk. Hopefully one of those people are dumb enough to like us. Right? They maybe think we're attractive in some regard. And then we say, okay, out of these two people or one person, I'm going to hope to build a friendship. This is completely backwards to the way the Bible describes marriage. Completely backwards. And this is why, number one, just think how trivial that is. And good luck with that. Because in 10 years, it doesn't, or 20 years, it doesn't matter how much money you have and how much plastic surgery you perform on yourself, your looks will fade. So if you marry because of the outside appearance, if you marry because of romance... If you marry because of physical attractiveness, that will fade and you will be forced to move on. Or, if you marry because of that, you'll be forced to go outside of the marriage relationship to fulfill your romantic lusts. Women that go to romance novels, soap operas, soap, I don't even know what to call them, those sappy love story movies where everybody, you know, to make your heart beat and make you cry at the same time and all those chick flicks should be forced to go to that. Men, go to pornography. A 2D image on a screen. They will sacrifice intimacy with their wife. They will sacrifice relationship with their wife and they'll go to a screen. The Bible has nothing good to say about that. Nothing good. You know what the Bible says about attractiveness and physical attractiveness? Beauty is vain. That's what it says. You know what Adam did? Adam got Eve and he said, that's my standard of beauty right there. That's beautiful. God presented a wife to him in marriage. He said, that's beauty to me. Men, women, your standard of beauty is your spouse. Not what Cosmo, not what Victoria's Secret, not whatever our culture says. Your standard of beauty is defined by your spouse. You don't get to say, well, yeah, I married her, but I'm more of a this type of guy. Or I like those type of legs. Or I like that. What are you doing? You're turning a woman into a commodity. Your standard of beauty is your spouse. 
I like skin. You know, she's just too skinny. She's too fat. She's too tall. She's too short. Her hair's too big. Her hair's too sleek. Your standard of beauty is your wife. And young men, flee youthful lusts. Flee. Run from it. Read Proverbs every day. And look what they say about the foolish young man that walks by the house of the temptress. He walks by and she lures him in with smells and temps and visual images. And he doesn't even know he's like a stag going to the slaughter. That's what's happening to your soul. That's what pornography is doing to your soul. New research has come out. We talked about last week how what you become what you worship. You become what you worship. If you worship false idols, you get hardened. You, you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear. New research is out right now that it says pornography is literally rewiring our brains. Where we look at people and we can't even see human humanness anymore. We can't even see personhood anymore. We can't see sisters anymore. We see sexual objects. It's horrific. It's horrific. And men are just shrugging their shoulders. Everybody's doing it. No, everyone's not doing it, men. Everyone's not doing it. There's men who are standing up and they're saying, I'm married to Christ. I'm keeping my life pure for Christ. The Spirit of God in me is doing this work that I can overcome, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's men who are standing strong. There's men who have been pure for years. You can do it, men, through Christ and through His Spirit. Wow, that was all a little extra. Not really in the notes this morning. So people think that being attracted to someone physically is love. So they go after that person. Listen, we have this, this, this is the word, right? Sexual chemistry. There's just this this chemistry, right? There's just this chemistry between us. And we go after this person. We pursue them because their sexual chemistry. We're attracted to them. We have a romantic interest in them. Many times in our culture, they begin sleeping together and then they try to develop a friendship. This is completely backwards. This is why the divorce rates are so high in our culture. Feelings come and go. Feelings don't last forever. Romance doesn't last forever. The feelings of romance... This does not work. Ultimately, our culture is trying to use sex to get intimacy and friendship. It doesn't work that way. It's not how God created it to work. We're going to talk a lot about that next week. Intimacy flows from friendship. Sex, biblically, is just doing with your bodies what you've already done with your heart, lives, Entirety of self through the covenant of marriage. Solomon's song, uh, one of the greatest love letters ever written, ladies and men, you should read it. Um, in the Old Testament, he's going on and on and on about his lover and about his how in love they are, and he's describing her physical beauty. And he's doing all these things, but he says this statement that was completely radical. For that day. 
He says in, in, in Song of Songs 5.16, he says, This is my beloved. This is my friend. In this ancient culture, women were possessions. Women were pretty much just owned. They didn't have rights. They couldn't vote. You know, all these different things, right? Women were just something to put on your arm. But the Bible doesn't speak culturally. The Bible, the Bible is above culture. The Bible speaks to all cultures. This is amazing. You know, 5,000 years ago, the Bible says, this is my beloved. This is my friend. When the culture at large is saying, you marry for prestige. You married to get higher position in society. You married to get stuff done at the house. You married to have kids and push on a legacy. The Bible says, no, this is my friend. There's an intimacy there. It's very Countercultural Women were treated like property. So this, this begs the question, what is friendship? Okay, if marriage is meant to be friendship uh, at, at its base, what is friendship? Well, I love the way uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, you didn't think I could get through a sermon without quoting C.S. Lewis, did you? I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says, friendship is this. When two people meet and they say, you too? I thought I was the only one. That's what friendship is. Oh, you too? You, you, you like that too? Oh, I thought I was the only one. That's where friendship starts. This is how we're going to define it today. Okay, and I'm going to build this out, but I'm going to define it right now. Friendship is a deep oneness. Remember, two becoming one. Friendship is a deep oneness that develops when walking together, side by side, looking at the same horizon. Friendship is a deep oneness that comes when walking together, side by side, looking at the same horizon. Now, if you, I know we've got some men in here that have been in the military. You probably get this. Uh, you, you get thrown into a group of dudes who you don't know. They're from all across the country, all walks of life. And you, start go, you have this common horizon. You've got this common goal. Uh, maybe, it, whatever, maybe it's just get to the boot camp or whatever it is. You've got this common horizon and you're all working towards it. And this brotherhood develops. Right? This friendship, this oneness develops. Common goal, working together, walking towards it, brotherhood develops. Okay? Um, if you've ever been on a football team, you've been on a sports team, same thing kind of happens. If you've ever been in a band, some, maybe. I don't really know if that works for bands. I, I've really never been in one, but um, I have no idea, so that might be a bad illustration. Uh, if you've been in a, a fraternity or a sorority or whatever it is, there's this goal out there, you're walking together towards it, and, and this community happens. Okay, that's what happens while we're on mission in our missional communities to the city. We choose a mission. We're on mission. We're going to serve and to lay down our life for this mission. And community just happens on the way. Community is not the goal. It just happens while we're on mission to a common horizon. Now, listen, now we're going to put this in the Christian, the Christian view. That's just friendship as a whole. But this is extremely significant for the Christian. This is why the Bible says that in order to have a marriage that sings, it's got to be between two Christians. Do you hear me? It's got to be between two Christians. Why? They have the same horizon. They have the same goal. If you are wanting to marry someone who's not a Christian, that means, and you are a Christian, that means you've kicked Jesus out of the center of your life to the suburbs somewhere. Because... 
How could you have a deep friendship with someone who you can't talk about the most central person of your life, Jesus Christ? Well, my husband is real cool about it. He just says, you do your thing, go to church, be as involved as you want to be, and I'm just going to stay home and watch football. What? You're best friends with a person that doesn't care about the most central thing of your life? The most seminal thing in your life? Your, Your husband or wife, go do your thing and that's fine. If you want a marriage that sings, it starts with a common faith. Now, I'm going to pick this guy because he's cute and we're already having sex and now I'm going to try to get him saved. Right? Missionary dating. Doesn't work that way. (laughs) Please listen to me. It doesn't work that way. I've had so many people sitting across my desk from me and I'm counseling them and after seven, eight, five, ten years of marriage, they're beating their they're beating my desk saying, Why was God not faithful to me? Why did he not save my husband? God is not promising to save your husband. Be, a, be both of you be Christians coming into the marriage. Now, if you're both uncritic, you're both unbelievers, and God saves one, that's a totally different subject. And you stay together and you pray for him and you work together and you work towards the same goal. But if, you're, if you were a Christian and your husband was not, it, it, it's just, it, it's set up for failure. So single people, single people, if you're going to the bar to find love, you're looking for trouble. You're looking for trouble. You're looking for heartache. You're looking for pain. All right, so it's got to start with a common faith. Now listen, we touched on this a little bit in the first week. Here's what it means to fall in love as friends. It is to look at another person. This is big. So to look, to look at another person of the opposite sex and get a glimpse of the person that God is making them into and say, I want in on this. I see what God is doing in you and it excites me. It thrills me and I want to be a part of it. Listen, that, to me that's so profound. I heard Tim Keller say this. Looking at a Christian... And I, I know this because I, I love to go um, uh, backpacking and mountain climbing. And, and I've summited some, four, some 14ers in Colorado. And it's one of my favorite things to do. You wake up in the morning and you look at the mountain and you see clouds. You look to the top of the mountain. I want to see the summit. Completely blanked by clouds. 90% of the time when you look at Christians, you're going to see clouds. Their sin, their failures, the indwelling sin that still remains. You can't see the peak. You can't see who they really are. You can't see what Christ is doing in them. But every, nearly every day, as you're walking towards that summit and you're walking towards that goal together, nearly every day, the wind hits just right, the sun bursts through, and for a moment, the clouds part. And you see this glorious peak standing before you. 
That's what it means to fall in love as friends. You're hanging around with this person and all of a sudden a tough situation comes up. Clouds block the view most of the time. But sun comes through just right. The wind comes through just right. And you see that person for who God has made them to be. You see something deep in their character. You see some deep faithfulness. You see some honor in this person. You see him do something right when everything in him should say, you know, do the wrong thing. You see a faithfulness, a trust, a strength, a tenderness, a gentleness. You see something and you say, yes, that's what God's doing in you. And I want to be a part of that. And as soon as you say that, the cloud's covered again. (laughs) I want in on this. I see what God's making you into. And it thrills me. It excites me. It motivates me. I want to be a part of it. I know the women uh, have been going through a, a study on friendship, and I loved Amy's definition of friendship. Um, uh, our pa- uh, Amy is our the past or the wife of our other pastor, uh, Rich Sakrachek. Uh, she runs our children's ministry as well. This is how she defined friendship: a friend is someone who is committed to God's purposes being accomplished in your life. You hear that? A friend is someone committed. To God's purposes in your life. That means a friend is not somebody who answers the phone. Right? You're bored on a Friday night. So you just start dialing. Oh, this is my my true friend. My homie. He's always there for me. He'll go out and get drunk with me. He's not your friend. He's a fellow fool like you. Okay? That's what he is. And he's... Never mind. Let's just let let that go right now. Okay? A friend is someone who's committed to God's purposes in your life. So when the fool calls you on the phone, he says, No, brother, I'm not going to get drunk tonight. I'm going to stay home tonight and study scripture. You want to come over? Let's talk about it. You want to go get a cigar or have a drink and talk about Jesus and read the Bible? You want to do some of those things? that are Because I see who you really are. I can see the peak of who you're supposed to be, who God's making you into. And I'm not going to feed your foolishness. A friend is someone committed to God's purposes being fulfilled in your life. Mm. When I saw it, my wife brought that home and I saw it on the paper and I, I nearly jumped. I said, yes, 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 that's right. That's what a friend is. <clears throat> what are, so let's, let's ask, what are God's purposes then? If a friend's excited about seeing God's purposes and he helps us do that, what are God's purposes? Now, um, the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Catechism um, answers this question for us. Number one, what is the purpose of man? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man, answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Glorify God, enjoy him. The glory of God, our joy, inextricably linked. If you think God wants your dutiful obedience, if you think God wants to shape you into this little legalistic guy that's super boring, you're absolutely wrong. God is after your joy. God wants your heart rapturing for him. He knows that's the only thing that will satisfy your soul. I look at a sunset or a sunrise and I'm overwhelmed at the beauty. And the thought immediately enters my head, that's nothing compared to God. It's nothing compared to his beauty. Sex, money, drink, all these different things, they're not meant to end on themselves. They point back to God. Sex can never satisfy us. It's just meant to point us back to our ultimate union with Christ. It's the only place we can find true satisfaction, true joy, true peace. 
Ephesians chapter 4, we learned, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read it real quick. Chapter 4, verse 15 said this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Turn to next, next to somebody and just say, grow up. Into Christ. Okay. So, that's the goal. Listen. How do we glorify God and enjoy Him forever? How do we do that? By growing up into Christ. By taking on the image of Christ. The Spirit of God is at work in us, pointing us to the gospel, pointing us to the Father. That's what He's doing in us. Making us into the image of Christ. That's the goal. That's the goal. That's the peak, guys. That's the horizon that two Christians get to walk to walk towards together. I'm looking at my wife knowing God is making you into the image of His Son. God is at work in you. It's about your holiness. It's about your joy. It's about your happiness through holiness. God is making you into a beautiful woman of God and we're on that way. We're marching together. And it's a oneness that develops when two people are marching towards that same horizon. Now listen, if I said the goal, the horizon of the Christian life and the Christian marriage is holiness, does that thrill you or does that depress you? If you're like me, holiness had a very negative connotation growing up. Holiness, for some reason, was long skirts, buns. (laughs) Not like the honey bun, you know, these buns. And... It, it, it just had this negative, starchy, cold, lifeless feeling. And when I hear God is holy, ugh, that's so not true. Absolutely false. And this, I, I meet a lot of young people. If they start hearing a little bit about the gospel and they think they get it. Um, and I promise you, you don't because none of us do fully and we're, that's the whole goal of this thing is to understand the gospel deeper and have it affect us more, um, more righteously, more joyously in our heart. And they start hearing this stuff about the gospel and about grace and then you confront them in their sin. When they just start swinging. Legalism. You're mean. Quit it. Don't tell me I did anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. Gospel, gospel, grace, 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 grace. I don't, no, 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 no. Listen, the law is impossible to follow. Correct. But it's still the standard of holiness. It's still a life lived perfectly. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. That's what a perfect life looks like. It's still the standard. Now, we can't do it. It's completely impossible. We're empowered by grace to see the law as beautiful now. Not its standards to please God, but just life in general. Now, if I push this, we get it. Ten commandments are, they're good, right? We, we should all love our neighbor. We should all not worship any other God. We should all not cheat on our wife. We should all not murder What the Spirit of God, what the gospel does is it it now takes the legal code, it now takes the law, and I see it as beautiful. I see it as a way not to earn my righteousness to God because it's already been given to me through Christ. Now I see it. That's what a human life is supposed to look like. 
That's what laying down your life for others is supposed to look like. The standard is still the same. Now, I could say the same thing, just say, look like Jesus, live like Jesus, act like Jesus. It's impossible. Can't do it. That's what holiness is. Justin, this is, man, old-timey message here, dude. Holiness. What are you talking about? Holiness. Listen, again, I'm just going to have to quote my man, C.S. Lewis. I love it. So what I'm saying is if you're a young person and you think, don't talk about holiness because it's impossible, you're right, it is. It's completely impossible. You can never do it. It's still the standard. You're still held accountable to it. Still is. Still the goal. Still the point. But now we're, we're not justified by it. We're justified through grace. We have this joyful obedience towards it now. So look, listen to this. this is, he says it a whole lot. How much should I quote? What time is it? I'm going to quote a whole lot more. I find I must... Okay, here he goes. Imagine yourself as a house. C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. Regeneration. Spirit of God comes in. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed done and so you're not surprised. But presently... He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not, make, does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? Has anybody ever felt that when Christ comes into your life? What is he doing? I thought it was going to be easy and nice and sweet and he's messing stuff up. The ex- explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas. (laughs) Nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that that can obey that command. He said in the Bible that we were gods with a little g. And he is going to make good his words if we let him. He will make the feeblest and the filthiest into into gods or goddesses, little g's. Dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror that reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less, he meant what he said. That's holiness. That's the mountaintop. The clouds cover it, but every moment, every now and then, they part and you get to see it for what it really is. God's making us into those types of people. It's brilliant. How should this change the way we look for a spouse? single people. Michelangelo, 
when he built the uh, statue of David. They, the story goes that they brought him thousands of blocks of granite. He went through, nope, that's not the one. 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 Until finally, he found what he considered to be the perfect block of granite. He said, that's the one. Most of us, when we're looking for a spouse, we're looking for the statue, not the perfect block of granite. What's the foundation? It might be a beautiful statue and it's made of clay. As soon as it gets heated up, as soon as the fires and the furnace of life start coming, it melts. Weak. Can't carry a load. Can't handle responsibility. Can't love one woman and have one standard of beauty. He's like a deer. He's like an ox to the, drawn to the slaughter by lust. Can't do it. Most people look for a statue. Christians look for the marble. How's his character? Listen to this, ladies. Ladies, let me... Men, men, here, here, this is it right here. What do they love? Go after that. What do they love? What's their greatest love? You can tell the excellency of a soul by what it loves. What's he pour his life into? Money, career, his looks, God, the church, other people. Humility? Look for those things, ladies. That's what lasts. It's the block of granite. I love it because this, the Christian gets to say, I see your weaknesses. I see your sins. I see your flaws. But I also see the person that God is shaping you into. It's Ephesians 5.27 where it says, um, that our, one of our jobs is that we are in this intimate relationship. We see the weaknesses, we see the sins, we see the dirt, we see the mess on our spouse, and we wash them. We sanctify them with the word. <clears throat> see, a spiritual friendship is eagerly and joyfully helping one another know, serve, love, and resemble God in deeper and deeper ways. It's a delight. Joy. According to the Bible, we are deeply committed to each other's holiness. And any lesser commitment is just playing marriage. Play marriage for a year and a half, a year, six months, eight months, two, two years. You play marriage. Any lesser commitment is playing marriage. Um, so th- what is this going to do? Now listen, this, this is not, I don't, wanna, I don't mean to, to pump up the sentimentality of, of marriage like it's, like it's a Hallmark card. Okay. Um, Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Ephesians just told us, speaking the truth in love to one another, we build each other up. Proverbs 27.17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so, friends, or so men sharpen men, or so friends sharpen friends. Listen to this. A good marriage will have sparks. Iron sharpened iron, that's not cute, that's not neat. There will be sparks in a good marriage. A spouse who only showers you with praise, never disagrees with you and avoid all conflict at all costs, is an enabling partner, not a spiritual friend. You know, I was thinking a lot about this. The, the, The guys who always claim, nice guys finish last. Right? That's not true. 
It's not nice guys. It's weak guys. Guys that are really sweet, but they never speak the truth. That's why, no, oh man, I almost went there. That's why a lot of girls like to have those guys around. How do I look? Great. He ain't telling you the truth. Uh-uh. He ain't telling you the truth. He's a sweet guy and you know it. Something in you knows it. That's why women are repelled by those type of guys. They know he's sweet, but he ain't telling me the truth. That's why nice guys finish last. Because you don't speak the truth. And, and, and at the base of that, young men, it's entirely self-centered. You're doing it for yourself. You don't, you don't want to offend them because if you offend them, they might not love you and they might, not hurt, or they might hurt you and you don't want that to happen so it's entirely self-centered. It comes back to you. You're not loving them by speaking the truth to them. You're lying to them so you feel better about yourself. This is also, this, this is also beautiful because it's telling us in a real friendship, in a real marriage, you're going to fall in and out of like with a person. Do you hear that? We talked about what, what the world thinks love is and it's something you fall into. It's a virus that you catch. And Christian says, no, love is a commitment. It's a promise and the feelings come afterwards. So this promise, this commitment is what sustains us, but the feelings will come and go. When, my, when I need to confront my wife or my wife, need, or my wife confronts me, I'm not overjoyed and happy at the moment. I don't have any feelings of ecstasy. There's no romance going on. It's tough. It's iron sharpening iron. There's sparks happening. It's God revealing the clouds. It's God at work in my heart. Now, we're going to go back to the Michelangelo uh, illustration. Because I, I love this. Michelangelo, when he, they're bringing him all these blocks, right? These blocks uh, of, uh, oh, I can't remember now if it was marble or granite, but whatever it is. They're bringing it to him. And they said, how did you make this statue? Over, you know, it's over 500 years old now. Beautiful, if you look up pictures of it, if you've ever seen it. One of the, mo- one of the most beautiful works of art ever. David's statue, right? The statue of David by Michelangelo. And Michelangelo says this. All I did was look at the block of granite and chisel away everything that wasn't David. He could see through the block of granite. He could see what it could be. Most of us go looking for David. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find that perfect person with that great looking whatever it is that I'm looking for. The face shape that I've been dreaming about. He's going to look like, you know, whoever was people's most attractive man last year. He can grow a great beard. <laughs> That's what a real friend does. Listen to me. That's what a real friend does. That's what a real friend does. A real friend looks at you like David lo- or like Michelangelo looked at that block of granite and says, I can see the real you and I'm going to go after everything that's not you. I'm going to chisel away everything that's not you. That impetuousness, I'm coming after it. That impatience, I'm coming after it. It's not okay. That, that pride, I'm coming after it. That self-centeredness, I'm coming after. I'm speaking the truth of the word of God in love to you. I'm going to love you in grace. I'm going to love you. I'm not going to say, if you don't change, I'm out of here. It's not how Christ does with us. It's not what God does with us. A real friend wields a chisel. A real friend speaks the truth in love to us. 
true friendship requires confrontation. A friend is someone who is committed to God's purposes being accomplished in your life. And that means if you love them, you will confront them. This is where we get to see our self-centeredness really rise to the surface. For my wife and I, um, I, I am a, I'm a strong, I have a strong temperament. That's a really nice way to say that. Uh, I have a strong temperament. I am, if you're familiar with Myers-Briggs, I am an ENTJ, which means they call me the field, field marshal. That's my personality. I am very strong. I know what I want. I know what I like. I'm very opinionated. And I can run people over very easily. Um, I knew that about myself going into our marriage. So I overcompensated. I knew my wife's frame was the absolute opposite. She was very tender. She is, I don't want to say weak. She's not weak, but she's very, um, she doesn't like confrontation. And she's gentle. And she's, she's very loving and very kind. And I cherished her, so I didn't want to run over her. So the first few years of our life, or of our marriage, was really beautiful. Like We, we didn't fight, we didn't argue, uh, uh, except once, that I can remember, um, over a video game. So that, but I can still remember that one. Uh, but we were both willing to lay our lives down for each other. But what I did, and what we both did, was we just kind of, out of love for each other, we just kind of ignored stuff. We just didn't confront each other. Because um, if, if I would say, uh, I'm hungry, babe. There's nothing in the fridge. She would feel crushed by that. I'm a horrible wife. I don't know how to go. He's telling me I don't know how to go grocery shopping. I can't do this. I can't. So it was like, I don't want to do that, babe. I'm not trying to crush you. I'm not trying to do that. And then I wouldn't feel loved. And there's this weird thing going on. We, we had a great marriage, but we did not confront each other. Until the last few years where we really experienced the gospel have we experienced the beauty of confrontation. And it's entirely self-centered not to confront. Entirely self-centered. I'm worried about my peace and happiness. If I confront her, she might get mad. Or if she confronts me, I might get mad and that would ruin my day. So we say, I don't really care about the person God's making, that per- making them into. I just want to be peaceful. I just want to have comfort in my home. See how this common horizon pushes us to do things that we're not comfortable with doing. So I'm going to give an illustration. Last week, we were talking about mission and our missional communities and how we all kind of push back against mission and we don't really want to go out on mission and um, we've got these idols that just don't really, we just want to be comfortable and such. And uh, my wife and I were talking the next day and I just said, what do you think is stopping you from uh, going out on mission? And she started thinking about it and praying on it. And I was like, oh, I don't really want to step into this. You don't want to have this conversation right now. It's a Thursday. It's almost my day off. Like, I don't want to start a, I don't want to start a mess right before my day off, right? And create an awkward home. Like, you know? and, and we had this conversation. So we, we stepped into the confrontation. We stepped into it. We had this talk. Uh, it wasn't, I wasn't crushing her. You're horrible. Why, don't, why are you so bad at mission? Are you even saved? Do you even know Jesus? What's going on? Like, that's terrible, right? That's crushing and she wasn't reacting the, the opposite way and saying, you're telling me I'm a terrible Christian and I can't do it. I don't know why I can't do it. I'm just made this way. I'm just gentle and sweet and I don't have to be like you. And she didn't do that. We had this conversation back and forth. We had this confrontation back and forth, wrestling through the gospel, wrestling through what it means. And I loved it. And then we just talked and we said, okay, well, pray about it. Go to God with it and see what happens. And uh, she likes to be comfortable. That's her thing. She likes the house perfectly clean. 
at all times. She wants to present a really good version of herself all times. She doesn't want you guys to know she's messy because that would make you feel weird. That's just how my wife is. She doesn't want to put her stuff on anybody else. So I get to do it on Sunday morning for her. Uh, and, and so we're, t- we're talking about this and how it's become an idol in her life and comfort. And she likes to control her surroundings and keep everything clean and neat. So it just makes her feel better. And we, we said, all right, let's pray about that and, and take it to Jesus and see what's going to go on. It was just a co- brief confrontation. I walked out going, yes, that went better than I thought. You know, like it was like that. I went out in the garage working. She steps outside to come out working. Our kids are playing with our neighbor. She looks down and she, the spirit of God does something. She says, there's our neighbor. We've been on mission to our neighbor. And immediately she says, I've got laundry to do. She takes a step back. She's about to go inside. She's got laundry to do. The house needs to be clean. There's stuff that needs to be done. And the conversation that we had comes immediately to her mind. And she knows she's being confronted with her self-centeredness. She knows she's being confronted with her comfort. So she steps out. She goes down. She talks to the neighbor. Laundry doesn't get done. Who cares? Right? Never gets done, does it? Right? Never gets done. That's why you've got to dump the laundry basket like this. Because the bottom stuff never gets finished. <laughs> And she goes down. She has an hour, hour and a half long conversation with our neighbor. Our neighbor has just went through a miscarriage. She reveals to her. They talk about coming to the church. Amanda gets to share some of her weaknesses and some of her struggles and some of her fears. And she comes back in and she's got a smile on her face. She's like, yes, I'm so glad I did that. Hour and a half. Why? Because of a little, a little confrontation. A little chiseling. A little chiseling. Right? Between us. She does the same for me. That's what, that's part of what marriage looks like. And it, three years ago, that never would have happened. I would have just went, like, it's okay, babe. I'll go do it. <laughs> if you're married, you don't get to stop confronting. You've been married for 20, 30, 15, 10 years, and you did it, and that didn't work. You don't get to do that. It's pragmatism. It's not the gospel. I tried that. It didn't work. It's pragmatism. You do it because you love them. You do it because it's loving. You do it because you see who God's trying, God's making them into. So you lovingly confront them. You continually do it. If you stop doing it, it's your self-centeredness that's stopping you. You try it. It's hard. It's difficult. Love continually confronts, continually reminds them of the gospel. Men, if you love your wife, confront her sin in love. Is she afraid of community? She push back on people knowing her garbage? Confront that. Women, is he afraid to be around men because he doesn't know how to have any conversation that doesn't involve some football team? Confront that. He can grow up. He can have real conversations. Lovingly confront each other. They don't want to be on mission? Confront that. Confront it. Confrontation is a part of love and it's a part of being on mission. This is what friendship does. So I'm going to say this. You start a marriage with friendship. Walking side by side with each other towards the same horizon of the new creation. But marriage is more than just friendship. Marriage is a friendship spiked with romance. Marriage is, see, for those of you who are like, oh my goodness, marriage is just friendship, boring, right? 
No, no, no. Marriage is a friendship first, primarily, but it's a friendship that is spiked with romance. Marriage is to be the most intimate relationship in our life. It's to be the closest of all connections. It's between best friends. It's a relationship that is based on complete vulnerability. They were naked and not ashamed. The two become one. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, he says. Complete vulnerability. Completely exposed, nothing hidden, no secrets. They were naked and not ashamed. Sex is doing with your bodies what you've already done, with your heart, your soul, your lives. Completely exposed and vulnerable. Ladies, this is scary. Right? I'll talk about that in a second, actually. <clears throat> I want you to look in Ephesians 5.31. Two become one. Right? Two become one flesh. I want you to see this in the text. Two become one flesh. Look, this is what we have in the text here. What I just told you, friendship, marriage starts with two people walking side by side towards the same horizon, right? Right here in the text, two friends walking side by side. But then this is what happens. Friendship develops. Oneness develops. As I'm yearning for you to be made in the image of Christ and we're walking towards that new creation together, all of a sudden something happens and we turn towards each other. And the people that are shoulder to shoulder, side by side, now are face to face. It doesn't start face to face and then hopefully we're going to walk together someday. Hook up in a club and then hopefully we'll develop a friendship. It's not how it happens. Start shoulder to shoulder, walking together towards the same goal. Intimacy, oneness develops and it turns towards face to face. Physical nakedness is supposed to go along with every other kind of nakedness. It's complete vulnerability. Sex is just doing with your bodies what you've already done with your heart and lives through a covenant promise of marriage. When someone says, I love you, but I don't want to ruin it by getting married, that person is really saying, I am not willing to be that vulnerable with you. I don't want to be that naked with you. I don't, want, I don't love you enough to be completely vulnerable and close off all my options. When a person says, I don't need a piece of paper to tell you I love you, it's basically saying, my love for you hasn't reached marriage level. That's scary, isn't it? Listen, this should really scare us. Marriage is about complete vulnerability, and that's why it needs a covenant to sustain it. When you're walking down that aisle, you don't know that person. That's scary. You think you do, you don't. I told you last week, my, or a couple weeks ago, my, my wife has been married to five different men. At least five different men since we've been married. All of them me, but five different guys. I am continually changing, continually growing, continually evolving, continually being made in the image of God. I am different. How can I know she's going to love me down the road? Covenant. We're changing. We're different. This is why, ladies and men, when marriage requires ultimate vulnerability, it puts a fence around it. Covenant. I can bear myself. I can open my soul. I can tell my secrets. I can talk to her about anything. We're in a covenant. You can't do that in a cohabitation. You tell them your 
deepest start, thoughts, scares the heck out of them, they're gone. You reveal your weakness, they bolt. Can't do that in a dating relationship. It's made for marriage. That's why God puts high walls around it. A couple, a couple years ago or a while back, I did one of the most beautiful marriage rededication ceremonies I'd ever done. It was a guy who had completely tanked his marriage a few years before. Had an affair, whole thing. Thought it was gone. Thought it was losing everything. And uh, the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, God rebuilt it, built the trust back. And they, they were standing at the altar together. And they were saying, I still do. Even though you've let me down, even though you failed me, I still do. And I got to say, this is one of the most beautiful pictures of covenantal love I've ever seen. I do a lot of weddings. Two young people got no idea what they're talking about. I'm in love. Right? No, you just spent a lot of money to feel that way. But this is people. They don't, she don't know how he's going to act on the honeymoon. He don't know what she's going to do a year down the road. She, he, they don't know nothing about each other. They know a little bit about each other, but they don't know nothing. Right, married people? You don't know nothing. But 15 years into the marriage, these two people, after sin, after devastation, after heartbreak, and they're saying, I still do. I said, this is love. This is what the covenant is all about. I know your sin. I know you screwed it up. I know you failed. I know you've lost it, but I see the horizon. I see God at work in you, and I still do. Beautiful. Beautiful picture of the gospel. And this is why you can't get this type of vulnerability outside of marriage. If you're two single people and you've got these best friends of the opposite sex, but it's not physical and it's not, I mean, and it's not going anywhere, it's not becoming marriage, one of those people will have to be broken. You either get married or one of those people gets crushed. Because one of those people wants the marriage. The other person, eh, I'm waiting for romantic feelings from somebody else. You can't get this type of vulnerability outside of marriage. It's not safe. Listen to me, ladies. It's not safe. I'm not up here harping on don't have premarital sex because God doesn't like you to have fun and blah, blah, blah. That's not what I'm doing. Sex is for marriage because it's safe. You can completely open yourself completely give of yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, financially, spiritually, soulishly. You open yourself completely. That's what it's meant for. You can't do that in the other relationship that doesn't have a covenant because you'll, you'll be constantly afraid. If I tell him this, if I tell him this, if he knows that, he's going to run. He's going to judge me. He's going to leave me. He's meant for the covenant. Last thing. I want you to look. Um, verse 27. <clears throat> or actually verse 26. We're going to look at a couple things. That he might sanctify her. This is the point of marriage. That he might sanctify her having cleansed her. <clears throat> having cleansed her. He's this body metaphor running through the whole thing. That there's this nakedness about marriage, completely exposed. I can't hide nothing. 
She can't hide anything. And my job is through the washing of the water of the word, speaking the truth and love, to cleanse her. How do I cleanse her? The scripture says like you would your own body. Men, women, it's gentleness. If you're hurt, if you have a wound, how do you wash that wound? Gentle. Right? Gingerly. Ah, wash that wound. It's how we care for each other. We confront gingerly. We're tough. We're tender. Next thing we do, um, <clears throat> verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it. We feed it. We nourish our body. We, it's how we, we feed each other. We study the word. We pray together. We nourish it. And lastly, uh, two words later, and, we ch- and he cherishes it. Do you cherish your wife? Is she valuable? Do you cherish your husband? This is tough. Incredibly tender at the same time. How would it change your marriage if you began to understand that its purpose was a spiritual friendship for the journey to new creation? How would it change your marriage if you began to see that you were meant to help each other grow into the new person that God is creating? How would it change the way you go look for girls, you go look for guys, single people, and you try to find that spouse? How would it change that? Those of you who have been married for a while, are you best friends or are you roommates? You share a bank account. When the kids leave, you don't really know what's going to happen. Pursue friendship again. I know you don't think you need it, dude. Take her on a date. Weekly. Weekly. I don't care if it's breakfast. I don't care if it's coffee. I don't care if it's a walk. She's your best friend. Oh, you got your bros, huh? You got your bros? One day you'll be back with your bros. Listen, the only way you can do this Some of you just felt like this heavy weight just got piled on you. How can I do this? The only way you can do this is through seeing that this is what Christ has done for you. He's cleansed you by laying down his life for you. It doesn't say Jesus' thoughts cleanse us. Jesus' nice words cleanse us. His blood cleansed us. It cost him his life. It should overwhelm us. He cleansed us. He nourishes us today when we come to the table. He nourishes us with his body and his blood. He gave us his word to constantly nourish us throughout the week, throughout the day. He gave us a community to nourish us. And this is the most spectacular thing. He cherishes us. Sinful, broken blocks of granite or marble. He cherishes us. He died for us because he had to, but he died for us because he wanted to. 
cherishes us. Only by being captured by that can you be free to lay your life down for your spouse. Only by having Christ as your best friend eternally can you be empowered to have your spouse as your best friend. Father, I pray that you would encourage us to be naked before you today. You see through our lies. You see through our facade. You see through our arrogance. You see through our fancy clothes and shiny cars. You see through our wicked smiles. You see through us. You see us perfectly. We say often, oh, they don't know my heart. You know our heart, and it's wicked. Jesus said our heart is wicked above all things. It's desperately wicked. We're vulnerable before you today. And we're nervous. What are you going to do when you see our imperfections? What are you going to do when you see our sin? What are you going to do when you see our weakness? You don't yell. You don't scream. You don't lash out. You lay your life down. You die for us. A bruised reed you will not break. Gentle with those who are gentle. Father, but the standard rings true. You died for us because we're broken. You've cleansed us. You nourish us with your word and with your spirit. And you cherish us. I pray that something inside of us would change today. That we would begin to reflect your glory like that. Like C.S. Lewis said, like stainless, spotless mirrors, we would reflect your glory back to you. Father, for those in here that have never made Jesus Christ their Lord and their Savior, they've not laid their life down for you, that you said, if you keep our life, we'll lose it eternally, but if we're willing to give up our life, you'll give us a better one. That that new creation, that promise of God making us into these new castles and these new homes and this brilliant supernatural thing that you're going to do in the new creation, that's only for those who place their trust in Christ this marriage that two people can be made one as they walk towards new creation, that horizon out there, and they can have best friendships that can only happen through two Christians with Christ at the center, the spirit producing humility in them. Pray that you would produce humility today. You would allow us to see our sin or see our nakedness and repent to you. Turn from it turn to you. Pray that you would nourish us with the body of Christ. We would be reminded that we are washed clean by the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.